Well, good morning and welcome uh, in this Advent season. It is good to be back. My name is Gary. I am not a guest speaker, I don't think. Maybe I am. Uh, but I really appreciate uh, the elder team and uh, others who have filled in while I was gone. Uh, if you not, have not been with us, my wife had uh, reconstructive foot surgery, and she's out for a good six weeks. Uh, she is, uh, she is uh, in the recliner. She's supposed to be in the recliner. <laughs> Uh, with her foot up, and so uh, she's in the process of recovering another three weeks. And in the meantime, I got sick with my annual uh, sinus stuff, and uh, I don't know if it was a competition or not, but it was like running a hospital ship up there at our house. So, uh, but I'm doing <clears throat> better. But just to forewarn you, if I do lose my voice today and I do the international sign for choking, Wes is going to jump up and finish all of this that I start here this morning. And so I'm thankful for the men who filled the pulpit, for Wes uh, Crago, for uh, Dave Gossett, two of the elders, and then also for Paul Mayhew, our missionary to China, who was just recently back. And I know that missionaries are supposed to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. And so last Sunday, I called Paul at 7.30 on Sunday morning. That's how much preparation he had uh, for last Sunday. So I'm very thankful that I could call him because I was not in any shape. I thought I was, but I wasn't to come down and uh, proclaim the truth. And so I'm very thankful uh, for the elder team, for Paul, and uh, for you all uh, for being here with us uh, today. I also, I was going to, if I can figure out how to work this iPad thing here, uh, Don always wants pictures, and so if you all would just give me a smile. You can wave, too, and I will show these to her. Another one from this side. All right, here we go. Good. All right. So now I have evidence that I actually did come here today and that you were here today also. So that is good. Well, we are in the uh, Christmas season, as you well know and you're well aware of, and I'm doing a series. We're stepping out of Second Peter until the first of the year to uh, look at some Christmas messages to get our hearts prepared uh, for uh, remembering the first advent of our Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when we lived in Dallas, one of the things we do every year was uh, to go out and look at the Christmas lights, fabulous Christmas lights, of course, in large cities. And we would make a point of going up to North Dallas, which is the very wealthy part. That's where our former president, uh, George Bush, lives up there. And uh, we would drive around the neighborhoods, not looking too suspicious in our old clunky car, driving around and looking at the Christmas lights. And many of these mansions, many of these very large homes, had full-size nativity sets. And there was even one where they had live animals and live people out there. And I remember specifically they had a live camel. Now, uh, money isn't everything, but boy, if you can show up with a live camel in your nativity set, you've really got something. Uh, and so we, that was one of the things. But I got to thinking about nativity, and we talk about nativity, and I typically think of the little set of figurines that we would put out at Christmas. Uh, in fact, my brother-in-law down in Colorado, what he does is he, they start a few weeks ahead of time with nativity set up, but he puts the wise men way, way over, and the shepherds way, way over in the house, and then every day they move a little bit closer <laughs> until they get to Christmas Day, and they're there. And uh, so it's a great, a great uh, kick for his grandchildren. Uh, I think his wife kind of just gives him one of those kind of looks, you know, uh, my sister, by the way. Uh, so nativity, though, what is nativity? 
And when we do a word study of nativity, it comes out of the Latin word nativitas, nativitas, which simply means birth or beginning, birth or beginning. And uh, one thing we do celebrate are beginnings, aren't we? Uh, all of us have had a beginning. There is a, a moment in history in our date book where we were born. We had a nativity, a beginning. Uh, we had a birth, if you will. And every year we celebrate, some of us don't celebrate too loudly, an anniversary of that birth, of that nativity in our lives. And we go back and we think about that a little bit. Our mothers probably, uh, if they're still living, think about it more. Uh, but nativity is about beginnings, and that's why when there is a new birth, when there is a new child, everybody wants to know, okay, well, what's its name? Well, the men, you know, we men, we don't care about birth weights and lengths and stuff, but uh, you ladies, you, know, you want to know the particulars, and so there's a celebration about this important arrival, this birth of this child. Uh, the question remains, though, and it remains for us, why was the baby born? Okay, any baby. Why are we born? Why are we here? And it begs the question of, we know we have a limited time, so what is going on? When we think of nativity at Christmas time, of course, we think of the baby Jesus, and we think of the Christ child, and perhaps uh, one of the old Christmas carols or hymns raises the question best when it says, what child is this who is laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? What child is this? Why did that birth take place in an animal cave or a stable or a stall in a backwater town in Judea? Probably Bethlehem was less population than 500 people, uh, and uh, it impacted the whole history of the world. In fact, our calendars reflect this arrival. We are describing an event that takes place commonly around the world literally all the time. There's always a nativity. There's always a birth, and yet this birth resonates with us, and we prepare, and we think about what this birth is. And so we think about our own life, and we think about, okay, I've had a nativity. For me, it was a few decades ago. Uh, but now what? What is this all about? What is their meaning behind it? Some people have prepared a bucket list. Perhaps you have prepared a bucket list of things you want to accomplish, things you want to do and see before this earthly life comes to a conclusion. Uh, it's called a life list among those who view birds. You know, they go out, they're birders. They go out, maybe some of you are birders, and go out and see birds and record what you've seen. But this basic idea of a life list or a bucket list has actually been around with us since the 5th century before Christ. Uh, one of the Greek historians, when he wrote about a history, it, he sent the Greeks eagerly across the Mediterranean to Egypt to see Luxor and the pyramids. They wanted to see it before they died. And so this concept has been with us for a long, long time. It was more popularized, actually, in the 2007 film with Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, who were both dying, and uh, they had a bucket list, and that's how that term came into popular usage. Well, there was a woman named Phoebe Snedinger. Phoebe Snedinger had a life list. She was an uh, avid bird watcher, a birder, I guess is what they call themselves, and uh, she had spent years devoted to this hobby of finding different birds, and she'd been enthusiastic about her life list. But then a doctor in her 50s gave her a diagnosis of terminal cancer 
on her 50th birthday. And uh, then she started traveling to more distant and daunting environments to see rare bird species. Meanwhile, her disease went into remission. But by the time she died in 1999, at age 68, she had then spotted a record 8,400 species of birds. That's 85% of the world's known winged creatures. Her achievement is an extreme example of a life list, things that you experience while you still have time. Uh, You know, it begs the question, do we as Christians really need a bucket list? Do we need a life list? Uh, If you do have one, what is yours and why is it so important? And what should be on your list that isn't on your list? Or as a Christian, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're bound for infinite glory uh, and joy. Do we even need a bucket list? That is the question. But a bucket list may not be much of a life goal, even though it looks good on paper and the accomplishment seems to ring uh, pretty loud. And yet, what is that all about? God uh, puts us here for a reason. And when they ask the question, if you were asked the question, why nativity? Why birth? Why your birth? What might you say? And that is a good question for all of us to answer. We can look around and we all had a beginning. And as much as we try to ignore it, we know that at one day, and God numbers our days, that we will have a conclusion on this earth and this part in between. What is it, the meaning of this? Why is it so important? What is the reason about the finish? What is the reason for your being? Uh, we usually start with the birth narrative in Luke chapter 2, that beautiful birth narrative of the Christ child. But yet, really, the Christmas pageants, the nativity, begins clear back in Genesis chapter 3. In this passage that Wes <clears throat> read for us, and we go to Genesis chapter 3. If you have your copy of Scripture, it might be between leather covers or it might be on an electronic device. You can follow along as in your favorite version as uh, you, as we just look at a few things. There is so much here, we are not going to unpack this whole passage. And do I hear a sigh of relief? Uh, we are just going to touch some high points. Uh, the issue is, is that uh, the need for Christmas, the need for nativity began in Genesis chapter 3. Now we come to Genesis chapters 1 through 3. You're probably familiar with the fact that it is the creation account in chapters 1 and 2, and then what we commonly call the fall of man in chapter 3. And uh, this sets the tenor for the rest of Scripture, and of course is the passage that really begins the setting for the first Christmas pageant uh, some 2,000 years ago. One thing you need to understand, and this is kind of a sidebar commentary when we come to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, is that uh, not all Christians who are people who claim to be Christians interpret the Bible the same way. I hope we have made that clear. Interpretation, there's a science of interpretation called hermeneutics. Uh, You can write that down and wow your friends with that word. I had a hermeneutic once, but I had it surgically removed. You know, you can do something like that. But that's the science of interpretation of Scripture. And... We adhere to a certain format, a certain consistency, and I will detail that for you in a moment. But when people approach Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, there are three views on how we should interpret this. First of all, there is a 
view that says this is all fictional history, okay, fictional history. In other words, none of this occurred. There was no Adam and Eve. It's just simply there as a story to uh, encourage us, to entertain us, and there's a number of reasons why those who hold that. Typically, those in a more liberal arm of Christianity or Christendom uh, would hold to this as fictional history, and it's an allegorical approach. They read into the text and draw out of it whatever they want to apply to the text, and so we reject that approach to interpretation. <clears throat> another view, another secondary approach is that it is poetic or figurative history. The, the people who hold to this view would say there was an Adam and Eve, although they weren't created as they are. Uh, the account gives us here. It is simply poetic literature or figurative literature. And again, this borders on an allegorical approach to Scripture. In other words, I can make Scripture whatever, mean whatever I want it to mean. The problem with this second approach, poetic or figurative history, is the fact that everybody has a hard time figuring out what is simply figures of speech and what literally is true. And everybody who holds this position has a little different view of everything. Uh, and so it's a very difficult position to hold, although I might add that in my reading that most higher uh, educational academic institutions, Christian institutions, Bible colleges and seminaries, probably a majority of the faculty member and the scholars hold to this view that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is poetic or figurative figures of speech uh, history. Okay? And so that is probably a majority view in our day and age, although historically that has not been the case. The third view is that this is literal history. And when I say literal, I mean, and we need to understand what the term literal means, is that literal means we take into account the forms of language, the grammar, the syntax, and if there is good reason to interpret it as figurative, as a figure of speech, uh, then we do so, okay? And so here at Grace Point Church, and you can uh, see more detailed explanation in the Elder Affirmation of Faith, which is part of our Constitution and bylaws, our hermeneutic our way of interpreting Scripture, first of all, is normal. In other words, there are normal rules of reading and interpreting Scripture. God communicated to us in a human language. Human language has grammar and syntax rules. And so we attempt to be consistent in normal interpretation. Secondly, it's literal, just what I just described, that uh, we take it literally unless there are indicators that it's a figure of speech, a metaphor, a simile, and so on. It's grammatical. In other words, this, God has used rules of grammar when he communicated to man in human language. It's historical. We have to take it in historical context. We need to beware of the thought of sitting there reading a passage of Scripture and immediately saying, well, to me this means, because that's the day and age we live in where people say the meaning resides with me and I determine the meaning and apply it to the text rather than allowing the text to speak to me. And that's called the author's intended meaning. And we need to remember that. And then finally, fifthly, systematic. That scripture <clears throat> confirms scripture. We have a systematic approach. So that's our hermeneutic. That's our interpretive uh, way of doing it, doing Bible study. Not all Christians adhere to that. Uh, they may adhere to some of those items, but then all of us are struggling for consistency, okay, in that. 
And so we come to this passage today, and we recognize that uh, God led Moses to write down this history, and I believe it is a literal history that there was an Adam and Eve, that they were created beings. They were the first man and woman. Now, there's many arguments about old earth, new earth. We're not going to go into that today, but <clears throat> the aspect is that uh, this we're approaching this as Moses wrote it down, and he wrote it for Jewish readers uh, in his day and age, and it's a history that stays with us. So that is the historical account of this. And so we come to this passage, and this passage, as I said, uh, nativity starts right here in Genesis chapter 3. And the first thing we recognize is we have a problem. We as human beings have a problem in verses 8 through 13. Notice that there is bad news here. Our forefathers, uh, Adam and Eve, our forerunners, Adam and Eve, were the ones who were put in this position. They were in a perfect environment in the Garden of Eden. They had direct communication with God. They had fellowship with God. They were in a perfect place, and yet they fell, as we've seen and heard read for us here. And notice in verse 8, they have sinned, and uh, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, We see that they heard God. This begs the question of what does absolute holiness sound like? What does absolute holiness and power and majesty sound like? You know, our English versions have a tendency in the translation to tame down the Hebrew that is used here. Uh, It sanitizes it a bit. And so we get the idea that uh, God is strolling through the Garden of Eden going, Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you? But the reality is, is if you translate the words that are used here from the Hebrew, it means in the wind of the storm. And I think of the recent windstorms that, uh, you know, we experienced here, not as bad as perhaps on the west side or in Spokane, and we saw a news video of giant trees toppled onto houses and cars and, you know, things were, it was really wild is my understanding. If you've ever been in a storm like that, uh, you recognize the power behind what nature is doing there. Listen to Psalm 29. Psalm 29, as I read it to you. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters, the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon." He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild, young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. He's not strolling through the Garden of Eden here. It would be translated as a thunderous roar, and the idea, the concept behind this is that he's ready to do battle. He's ready to render judgment. So they heard the Lord, the storm of him coming. I think 
we would hide too. I think we would seek shelter if we heard what Adam and Eve heard. But it says there in verse 8, they heard him, and then what did they do immediately? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. Reminds me at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. This is during the tribulation and the seals of the book are being opened by Jesus Christ himself. This is God's wrath being poured out upon the world. And listen uh, to when Jesus Christ opens the sixth seal. When I looked, he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? We have a problem. They heard God, they hid themselves from God and then in verse 10, they feared God. Look at verse 10. Well, in verse 9, let's go back. God asked three questions in this passage. Where are you in verse 9? In verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Verse 13, what is this you have done? Let's take that first question. They feared God in verse 10 because he asked, where are you? Now, God, knowing all things, being omniscient, uh, he knows exactly where they're at. He's looking for a response from them. And that is a fundamental question for you and I. When God asks us, where are you? We've had a nativity of our own birth. We are traveling towards a consummation of this life. Where are you? Where am I? You know, what is going on? What is truly important in life? The effects of sin are punishment and provision. The man and the woman had life, pleasure, abundance, and perfect fellowship. In verse 10, now they were afraid. But notice why they were afraid. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. This idea of shame. Remember back in verse 25, it says they were both naked and not ashamed. Look at what sin did to them. They sowed these fig leaves in this vain attempt to cover up what they had done. Instead of life, they had death. Instead of pleasure, now pain. Instead of abundance, a meager subsistence. Instead of perfect fellowship, alienation and conflict. We see these themes in chapter 3 of death, toil, sweat, thorns, the tree, the struggle, the seed, are all later traced to Christ. He is the fulfillment of the beauty of what God is doing here. He is the other Adam, the second Adam, who became the curse, who great sweat drops of blood and bitter agony. He wore a crown of thorns. He was hanged on a tree until he died, and he was placed in the dust of death. And that's a picture of what goes on here. Paul and the apostle in Romans 3.23, we know this verse very well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the picture of trying to hit a target, and of course the target is God's absolute holiness, and no man 
can reach that, no matter how good. We tend to grade on the curve and have a sliding scale, and yet uh, whether you're Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or some other figure who has done a lot of good in this world, uh, it doesn't count for all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. This is called the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, there are many who reject this doctrine. I believe the Bible teaches it very clearly. Uh, if we doubt this, uh, all we have to do is look at the recent events this week in San Bernardino, Colorado Springs, look at the Middle East, at ISIS, and uh, we know that evil is rampant. There is total depravity. In other words, we are unable to lift ourselves up and make us holy and good. In the autumn of 2002, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, uh, there was a priceless 15th century statue of Adam. And uh, when everybody was gone, uh, it fell off of its pedestal. At first, they thought it was Somebody had pushed it off, but they realized that the pedestal, the podium it was standing on, had collapsed, and this, this priceless statue uh, fell to the floor and shattered into hundreds of pieces. Uh, it was a Venetian sculpture, and it buckled on its own accord. And the <clears throat> museum's director at that time said, it will take a great deal of time and skill for the piece to be restored. In fact, I think it took some eight or nine years for it finally to be put back together. And yet, as you look at the restoration process of this statue of Adam, it reminds us of our own brokenness because you can see when they do <clears throat> x-rays, you can see the fracture lines and you can see the pins they put in to support it. It looks good on the outside, but it is fractured on the inside, never to be the same. In the movie Apollo 13, when it said, Houston, we have a problem. And us on spaceship Earth, we do have a problem. And we live with the consequences. In verses 14 through 19, we see here that God speaks to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. And we often call this uh, the passage of cursing, as God curses these things. But notice that only Satan is the one who is cursed directly. Look in verse 14 and 15. He says to the, sa to the, to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the, of the field? On your belly you will go, and on your dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed, her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So he's cursed, and he becomes a crawler, and he is going to be crushed. Remember that Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is not all-powerful. And he uses this object of the serpent here to represent uh, what is going on. Now, I have an aversion to serpents, just personally. Some people like snakes. I mean, I, I don't understand that. Uh, it's just, it just weird to me. When we were in Indonesia, uh, my missionary friend there, when we spent a number of weeks there, said, just be sure that every snake you see is venomous. Uh, they will kill you if they have a chance. And so when we would see a snake, uh, it, I just recoiled. You know, it spoke of danger. And I think that's an inbuilt reaction that begins right here, that there's enmity between the human race and the serpent. Now, if you love snakes, that this is no condemnation of you. I just don't get it, okay? Uh, but <clears throat> they, <they've clears throat> we live with the consequences, and God spoke to the serpent and pronounced this curse upon him. Then he speaks to the woman in verse 15, or 16, excuse me. 
To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and your pain you will bring forth children. Let your Do I hear an amen there? Okay. And your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. There's pain in childbirth. Uh, part of the consequences is a pain in childbirth for the woman and male do- dominion uh, in this world. And that is what we live with, the consequences. And notice, she gets one verse, and then the male gets... Uh, Three verses, God spoke to the man, to Adam, in verses 17 through 19. And he noticed, noticed here that because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten, you know, Adam was supposed to take the lead. He should have led her not to take part in the sin itself. He listened to the voice of his wife. He's eaten from the tree which I command you. You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And uh, I think everybody in agriculture would understand these passages. All of us earn uh, our living, our bread, by the sweat of our brow uh, because the ground is cursed. I am always amazed at how well the weeds grow in my yard, and I've got to nurture the grass, uh, and it's amazing. And so every, everybody in agriculture understands this. He toils for food. His days are limited. And here is the announcement of physical death. You know, People, human beings, Adam and Eve, were designed and created to live forever. And that will be restored someday when we look at eternal life uh, in our glorified bodies. But uh, at this point, if God would not have pronounced the physical death that was coming to them, their days would be numbered. It actually is a blessing because he was not going to leave them in their sinful condition in, this, in the world that is broken by sin. And so God, in his righteousness and his grace, even in this declaration, has given them a blessing. Uh, Romans chapter 3, 10 through 12, Paul relates this. It actually, he's quoting Psalm 14. It is written that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Bad news, isn't it? That's the declaration there. Matt Woodley, who uh, recounted this event from his childhood, said that when he was 10 years old, uh, his dad, who was a medical doctor, received a special gift from one of his patients. It was a beautiful uh, jewel-encrusted, sequin-encrusted globe of the world. And the globe spun on its base, and it played one of his dad's favorite songs. Uh, His dad demonstrated how it worked. You had to wind it up and then let it go, and it would play the music as it went. But his dad warned him, warned Matt, that you can touch it, but don't wind it because it might break. And uh, Matt Woodley recounts that a week later, while his dad was at work, he found the globe and brought it to his room. And although I heard my dad say, don't wind it up, I decided to wind it up anyway. I gave it a little twist, let it play. It played for only five seconds. So I gave it another twist and another one and another one and five more and then snap. The globe separated from the base. I desperately tried to fix it. I tried forcing the two pieces together. I tried gluing it. I tried taping it. Finally, as I stared hopelessly at the two pieces of the globe, I realized it was broken beyond my repair. So I went to my closet, climbed in, shut the door, and hid. He says it was Genesis 3 all over again. Our world is like this broken globe that Matt Woodley talks about. It's twisted too far, and we can't put it back together again. Relationships break, sexuality is broken, we're slowly breaking our earth, our hearts break, nations break, uh, go to war, uh, health breaks, politics 
uh, has been broken for a long time. All the glue, tape, and positive thinking can't put it back together again. I don't know if you saw the headline out of the New York Daily News this week after the shootings in San Bernardino. Giant headline which said, God isn't fixing us. Uh, The tenor of the article is basically a criticism of those who are saying they're praying for San Bernardino, particularly many of the Republican candidates for president who tweeted that they're praying for San Bernardino. And the article was basically condemning them, saying prayer doesn't work. It reminded me of... uh, The Three Stooges, actually. Now, that was one of my favorites growing up. My wife thinks The Three Stooges is a documentary about us men. And uh, maybe she's not far from the truth there. But but remember when Moe would line up Larry and Curly and then slap them both with one motion? Quack, quack. Uh, That's what this writer in the New York Daily News did. He slapped all of the Republican candidates. He slapped every one of us who believed in praying for San Bernardino, for those families, and in fact, he included God all in one motion. He really doesn't get it, does he? And that's the bad news, is that the world is broken, that we do experience these things. doesn't mean we don't try to fix what we can fix, and yet, God is the ultimate answer. No matter how hard we try to do away with male dominion, agonizing labor, painful childbearing, death, These evil will continue because sin is present. They are the fruits of sin, and therefore we live constantly with the bad news. But yet, there is good news. But yet, there is hope. And that's what we get a glimpse of here in Genesis chapter 3. This is the beginning of the first Christmas pageant. This is the beginning of the real nativity. God provides the solution. Look at verse 15 and notice this comment about the seed. I will put enmity, this is God speaking to Satan, or the serpent, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, this has often been called the proto-evangelism verse. In other words, this is the first declaration that there will be evangelism, that the Messiah is coming. Uh, Some Uh, interpreters press that too far and move into an allegorical method. The challenge for us in the 21st century is we know the the, the New Testament, we know the rest of the story, and not to read back into it. Imagine yourself, as uh, one of my professors would say, the hot and taut down in 1013 who'd never heard of anything, and he was reading this for the very first time. Well, the idea is is that Eve is the mother of all of uh, humanity, And therefore, Christ comes through this line of humanity. And we know, because we know the rest of the story, that this is the seed that is going to crush Satan. And so that's the good news. Romans 5, 6 through 11 is giving us the good news. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, that means to be declared righteous in Christ, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This seed, this promise that God is going to take care of it. 
And Jesus Christ <clears throat> is the fulfillment of this. Adam still had some faith in the midst of this trauma. In verse 20, it says, He called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. He had hope in the midst of judgment. He had hope in the midst of his whole world fell apart, and yet there was still hope. And there was a divine covering. Notice that in verse uh, 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This would be the first blood offering, if you will. And by the picturing or foreshadowing the blood of Christ, which pays for the sins of the world. We have a sin problem, and Jesus is the solution. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 1 through 2 is a great, powerful statement of good news. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We as believers, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life, you need to be reminded that you're no longer who you used to be, whether you were saved at age 5 or age 25. You are no longer who you used to be. There is now no condensation in Jesus Christ. Another illustration from the art world in uh, the Metropolitan, again, Museum of Art, there's a famous painting that hangs there. If we were able to go there today, if it was open, we could go in and see this painting. It was by the 16th century painter El Greco. Uh, The painting is titled The Vision of St. John. It was completed about 1614. Uh, It uh, looks like it could have been painted in the 20th century, though. He used very unusual color combinations. It looks very contemporary. But it's a a picture of what El Greco, how he translated or interpreted a passage out of the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs bearing faithful witness of Christ, and they're given white robes. And uh, John, it seems, is looking heavenward towards the Lamb, The colors of the painting are a startling revelation of another reality. But if we were to go there today, we would not see the painting as El Greco originally painted it. It doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, There was a restoration project done on it in 1880, and those who restored it, they trimmed off 68 inches, almost half of that canvas, and threw it away in the name of improvement of the scene. And so... When we think about it, what we see is John reaching up, and there should have been the lamb, Jesus Christ there, and yet he just reaches up to the edge of the painting now. There's nothing above him. The martyrs don't seem to be receiving gifts from anywhere, and John's praise is non-existent, some looking for something that's not even there. And so that's the world we live in. And in danger, we can be in the same place of not having the object of our worship before us. So nativity, this birth, this beginning, it's set in motion here in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus was telling Nicodemus, remember in John chapter 3, in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So for the believer in Christ, we have two births. We have a physical birth and a spiritual birth when you trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Later on in John chapter 3, he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In other words, belief is the requirement and the consequence is eternal life and not perishing. The serpent's temptation to Adam and Eve or to Eve was to take and eat something God has not offered to you. 
And Jesus undid that sin by saying, this is my body for you. Take it and eat. And so we come to communion today, and I'll ask the men to come up as we observe communion, the Lord's table. And we come this morning to participate and partake of uh, these elements, the bread and the cup, as we're commanded in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the central passage for the practice of the Lord's table in uh, the church today. And we come and we do this once a month, but the, the uh, Bible does not declare how often we are to do it. It's more concerned that we observe what Jesus said here, do this in remembrance of me. That's why this is a memorial time to remember what he has done for us uh, when we think about that. And so we come to this passage, and by the way, I want to mention, for those of you who are on a gluten-free diet, thanks to Penny Byerman, these are gluten-free elements. And so I just want you to know uh, that we're taking your dietary restrictions into account here this morning. Uh, So as we come today to this, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, that I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And of course, he's reflecting back on Luke chapter 22 on that first Lord's table. Uh, they observed the Passover, he and his disciples, the night before he was uh, arrested and crucified. He was betrayed that night that they observed Passover, but Jesus Christ applied the meaning, the new meaning, to the Passover feast, this element. And because he was the fulfillment of the longing of Israel for centuries to see their Messiah come. And we look back on that day, and therefore we are to remember him and what he has done. And of course, the challenge is, is what do you remember? What do you remember about Jesus Christ? And that's always the challenge for me. And uh, I think about doctrinal theological issues. I remember he is the king of glory. He's a lord of lords. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He is my savior. I remember the theological parts, but then personally I remember him rescuing me out of agnosticism and atheism. I remember him rescuing me personally who had such a fear of physical death and who opened my eyes to the truth that he numbers my days and I don't need to worry about that because he is righteous and just and that he cares for my children more than I could ever care for them and my family and my church family and that uh, he is all in all. So what do you remember Well, this morning, uh, we follow the pattern that's listed for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to ask Wes Crago to give thanks for the bread.
son confessed before you, and remember more importantly that your son's in 